0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today, um, I don't have a guest. I did, but uh, I may have made a mistake and managed to lose the recording. So, um, isn't that great? But I didn't want to leave you guys hanging, so if you get two stories from me this time, I'm going to be talking about a massacre that happened in South Korea back in the 80s, and... I'm also going to be talking about a cursed item, which I uh, read about online the other day. Well, about a month ago, maybe. So um, this can going to be fun. Alright, well, um, we'll get straight into it anyway. So um, our first story is about the Yong Massacre in South Korea back in the 80s. Bit of background about the guy first. His name was Wubumkon, and he'd served in the South Korean Marines until 1978. And in December of nineteen eighty he was also hi- he was then hired by the National Police in Pusan and he settled in the village of uh, Togokri in December nineteen eighty one, after being transferred to the local police station in Kungu. Um so you gotta kinda of think, this guy was he must have been relatively well respected because 'cause he's gone through all these official channels. He's worked, he's like he's been the Marines, he's been the police forces. People don't even trust national services like that. There's probably uh, plenty of tests to get into those kind of things, so, um, but yeah, well, anyway, we'll get into the, a bit of the prelude of what led up to the situation, because this is one of the more interesting ways I've seen a atrocity start. Well, basically, Wu had a living girlfriend. Her name was Chen Mao-sun, and on the afternoon of uh, April 26th in 1982, she, um, woke him up by swatting a fly on his chest. He's an officer. He probably worked weird hours, probably slept weird hours. So, anyway. Uh he he was enraged. He left the house and uh was stormed off to the police station where he reported for duty at about four PM. Um according to early reports, he be- was he began drinking quite heavily from a bottle of whiskey. But also, according to local officials, uh, he would he wouldn't be able to cover the ground he did, which is about four kilometres of difficult and rocky terrain. Uh, while he was intoxicated, so um, some bit, things are probably a bit exaggerated, but who knows. I'm going to go for medium drunk. And, um, at about 7.30, he returned home from the police station, where um, he punched and kicked his girlfriend and started smashing furniture before, and remember, this started, uh, he got angry from something, I'm guessing there was a lo- something that led up to it as well, which we're not told about, but um, either way, very fucked up. But yeah, he um, he got back home and and uh, still in a rage, uh, where he and punched and kicked his girlfriend and started smashing furniture uh, before he made his way to to the army reservist's armory and gathered several weapons, which consisted of two M2 carbine rifles with about uh, either 144 or 180 rounds of ammunition. Uh, it wasn't quite clear and seven hand grenades. So he he was pretty damn well armed. And uh, s- some reports um, basically said that the other officers were at a meeting, so he managed to grab them unnoticed, but other reports say that he intimidated the guards to access. There was a bit of negligence here, to say the least. At about 9.30, his rampage began, and uh, he shot his first victim and entered the local post office. Where he killed three phone operators and cut off telephone lines. Yeah, a- After this, he uh, went to uh, a place called Trongni, where he threw a grenade and shot passers by in the marketplace uh, indiscriminately, which ended up killing six people. Uh, he also wounded his girlfriend, Chun Mao Soon, who had basically gone to investigate after hearing shots in the village, and who later said, uh, basically, I went out and found Wu on the rampage firing from two rifles, and one of the bullets hit me. So, he really was not really caring who went after. It was pretty indiscriminate. Um, And basically, from that point on, he proceeded from village to village, taking advantage of his position as a police officer, and basically gaining entry to houses and shooting their inhabitants. Which is a really scary thing, because... um, Officers are generally like one of the hi- one of the highest points of trust in us in societies, and um, yeah, it's a very like none of the people here really expected this to happen, and people and people did just trust him and let him in sometimes. But yeah, so uh, this this kind of driven in, in this next point where uh, he at about ten thirty he took eighteen year old Kim Joo Long hostage. Um and moved to a place called Ungiri, where he ordered the boy to get him a soft drink from the grocery store where a fifty two year old man named uh Shinwido lived uh or Shinwido. I'm going to butcher plenty of names uh but that's fine and after after getting what he asked for Wu Wu killed the boy and afterwards um Shinwedo, who survived the massacre, said this in regards to this this scene in particular. He said, the patrolman came to my house leading a student. He asked for a soft drink. I gave him one. Uh, He only had one gulp and fired a shot at the student, killing the boy there. Then he fired shots at my wife and two of my children. They all died on the spot. Running out the house, I was shot and hit in the legs. So, uh, yeah, basically no warning. Pretty cold and uh, calculated almost. And uh, really scary. Like, before this, people just thought this guy was a normal dude. Nothing too weird about him. And um, he then uh, continued his shooting at the marketplace, killing a total of 18 people in in that village, um, before making his way to another village called Pyeongchon-ni, where he shot a family of four in their beds, and then went to a home where a wake was in progress, Um, so there were plenty of people gathered here. And when the owner of the house saw... Wu, the armed policeman, standing at the door, he asked what had happened, and Wu basically explained that there was an alert, as North Korean agents had been spotted in the area, which led to the man inviting Wu into the house for dinner. And Wu accepted, like, he sat down and had dinner with them, even and made small talk, complaining about his small salary and his transfer from Pusan to the countryside. And this went on until, at one point, one of the guests uh, remarked that his ammunition didn't, didn't look real. Uh, which resulted in Wu sh- beginning to shoot at the guests, where he ended up killing 12 people in the house and a further 8 in the streets, which left a total of 24 people dead in this village. And um, I, I, I'm i not entirely sure, but I can't imagine village like countryside villages in the 1980s being too dense. Like, this would have taken a, ma- a major chunk out of a community each time, and for pretty much nothing. And, um, yeah... Then around here is when the police became became more involved in the currently continuing massacre which is which is questionable really because um basically the police were alerted within minutes of the first shots being fired, and it took them an hour to ga to gather a team of thirty seven officers to uh, to search for the gunman, which sometimes would be okay fair enough it's very it's very last minute and uh, it was under the cover of darkness but um on top of this, the National Police Headquarters in Seoul went not informed until about 1.40am after the, after it had been going on for hours. And around that time, just uh, about 2.5 miles from the police station in Kungu, um, Wu had found refuge in a farmhouse belonging to a 68-year-old man called Sa-In-Soo, uh, who basically told that um, he was chasing a communist infiltrator from North Korea again, and the family should gather in a main room in the house so he could protect them. So the family, of course, gathered for his requests. He's a police officer, and there's obviously something serious going on, so uh, yeah. And the family gathered his request, but of course, it's Wu, so he took them hostage. About two hours after this, the police uh, eventually caught up with him. Forces were closing in, and Wu, we yeah, he, he basically knew his time was up. He took two more of his grenades and strapped them to his body before grabbing three, three of the people in the house and setting the fuses off. And they became his final victims as he blew himself up So ensu so the owner of the farmhouse was uh, he survived, but uh, he was gravely injured in it and uh, had to be hospitalized. The policemen finally moved in and um and basically all they recovered from his um, from his ammo was like all he really all they really found unused was four rounds of ammunition and one hand grenade, so he had really gone to town. He started with either 144 rounds or 180 rounds of ammo and seven grenades. That's a devastating amount. And um, yeah, anyway, the rampage finally ended after he took his life. And 55 people and Wu himself were dead while 36 others were wounded and six six of them seriously wounded. And um, on May 8th, a child who had been shot died bring the number of people killed by the gunman up to fifty six uh fifty seven if you include himself just one person and uh out of pretty much with no warning really it's uh quite sad that would this would have been devastating for the lo- for the local communities um they lost entire families children elders teenagers and yeah um Chen Mao soon actually survived his living girlfriend, and basically said that her boyfriend suffered from an inferiority complex and had been bothered by the villagers' comments on their living together unmarried. I mean, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I assume nineteen uh, eighties uh, South Korea was a bit more a bit more traditionalist uh, when it came to marriage, um, and normally had people and normally wanted people to be married before they moved in together, and. um... There was a massive response to this uh, atrocity, and uproar. Later on, the provincial chief of police was suspended, and four other officers were actually arrested for negligence of duty, which, it's very understandable. I don't think many people expected this. Like, you, you can't expect this. But the slow response was extremely serious. On top of this, the Interior Minister of South Korea, Sir Chung-Hwa, and the National Police Chief uh, Ah Youngmo offered to resign as a form of atonement for the rampage. Um, and yeah, the interior minister of South Korea, uh, Sir Hwa, was actually held responsible for the incident by the president and um, and left the office and was replaced. On top of this, a special parliamentary team was formed consisting of 19 parliamentarians and led by the Home Affairs Committee Chairman, Kim Jong-ho, to investigate the shooting and its disastrous handling by the police. And the South Korean Cabinet also decided to pay compensations to the victims and their families. So at least they got something, but it's re- but you can't really replace that many people. Like, one or two is devastating. Entire families is pretty unthinkable. But yeah, and... um. This rampage uh, remained remain the deadliest mass murder in in modern history committed by a lone gunman until the Norway attacks of July twenty second of twenty eleven by Anders Breivik, and was the deadliest mass killing in modern South Korean history until the Daegu subway fire, which happened uh, much later. Yeah, that was uh, the Uiryeong massacre, which I and I've probably. Butchered so many names. So, so many names. But um, it's fine. You can yell at me later on Twitter or uh, Facebook or whatever. Yeah, I, I enjoy reading your comments, honestly. Uh, we've actually had quite a lot of um, great responses for last episode, rega- with, especially regarding John Jones's um, predicament. Yeah, keep sending me messages. Um, I really enjoy reading them. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we'll cut to music here, and then I'll be back. Got your happy price price line All right and we're back I hope you enjoyed the last story but um the last story was pretty dark so um how about we go for a cast item Everyone loves a good cast story, and um, basically, I came across this on Reddit originally. Uh, I really enjoyed reading about this; it's super creepy. So um, yeah, let's get let's dive straight in. I came across uh, a post by a user called Wigged Hiker Way. He made a post on the paranormal subreddit. And he, where he posted with a uh, title uh, which said, Me and a friend found this creepy statue while hiking and now things are going on. Anyone know what this is? And um, post a picture of a super creepy looking idol that he, that he basically found in the woods. Uh, in this weird uh, cave off the trail. Yeah, he basically found this um, weird statue which is in the shape of a person and it has... Three nails driven into each eye, and a noose around its neck, uh, made of rope. And uh, basically he posted saying, Last weekend my friend and I went hiking in the Catskills near Sundown Forest, and uh, found this really creepy statue while fucking around some caves. And it looks like it it might be old. I don't think it's been there very long, but this um, cave was way off the trail. Uh, Someone had a fire there not long ago. And he posted a few pictures, which I'll put in the in the comments or on, on Twitter later, in the description. And, um, it's pretty unnerving, like, from looking at it. Pretty creepy. And then he goes on to say, The statue really wigged me out, but my buddy decided to take it home with him, even though I told him not to. Everyone says there's devil worshippers that come out here to sacrifice animals and do their spells and shit. I didn't want anything to do with this, with this thing. A couple of days later, my friend calls me, and then tells me that he thinks the statue is haunted because it keeps moving from its spot and he keeps smelling weird stuff. He says he can't sleep at night because banging keeps waking him up. Last night someone knocked on his door, but no one was there when he opened it, and he's super weirded out. He thinks he has a ghost because of the statue. It must just be a coincidence, but I think he's actually scared. Before we go set the thing on fire, I wanted to see if anyone knows what it is. Anyone ever seen something like this, or heard of a statue causing ghosts? And he goes and says it's a throwaway because he didn't want to use his main account for spoopy stuff. And then there's an editor after this, where he says... Um, my friend showed up here at like 11.30. He's out of his mind scared, never seen him like this before. I'm going to do my best to remember anything he just told me because it was a lot. But long story short, he's sleeping over because something is in his house. We found a statue on Sunday, and, and like I said, I told him not to take it because it gave me bad vibes, but he took it anyway. He's been an atheist as long as I've known him, so when he told me that something was going on, I thought he was just fucking with me because he knows I like to watch paranormal shows. It started out as just knocks and banging, but he said that by, by Wednesday, he started waking up in the middle of the night feeling like someone was watching. This kept happening through the week, and every time he'd wake up, he'd smell a really strong scent like pond water. He doesn't believe any any of this stuff, so he just ignored it until a few days ago, when the statue moved from his desk into his living room. He says that every night since Thursday, it's moved into a different room than when he left. He thought it was his dog moving it around, because it smelled funny, but his dog won't go anywhere near it. He says that she's actually peed in the house three nights in a row, and she's never ever done that. Last night, Someone knocked on his door at 3 in the morning, but when he went to open it, no one was there. His motion lights weren't on, and there weren't any cars in his driveway. He said that he opened the door to look outside, and that's when he knew he'd made a big mistake, cause he, um, because he just got really bad vibes. And then the guy at post there uh, basically said, uh, that's why I made a post in the first place. At that point, I didn't have any reason not to believe him because it had gone way beyond a joke and he sounded really fucking scared on the phone. He kept telling me that he was going to burn the statue because he noticed that something followed him home. Anyway, he stayed up all night and then decided to go to the movies to take his mind off it. Uh, When he got home, he said it felt like everything was fine and he finally decided to go to bed. And I quote, this is where it gets super fucked up. Um... He says that when he woke up, which was at like 10, it was because his dog was barking like crazy. He said the pond water smell was was stronger than ever, and when he went out into his hallway, he saw all these muddy footprints everywhere. Not like shoe prints, but barefoot. All of his doors and windows were locked. After someone knocked on his door, he freaked out and made sure everything was locked up. So there's no fucking way that anyone could have gotten inside. Sitting in the living room was the statue, which had moved again, Uh, and he says that when he started to go near it, he heard someone breathing, to quote, like his grandpa with the tracheotomy. He pieced the fuck out, and now he and his dog are sleeping in my guest room tonight. I've never seen him this scared, and he even started crying. I have no fucking idea what to do. I believe him, because he has no reason to lie about this, because it's way too far to be a joke now. I know everyone says not to burn it, or whatever. So, what the fuck do we do? He wants me to go to his house to get the statue tomorrow. But I'm too freaked out to take it back to where he found it, because I don't want to see whoever put it there. This story caught my eye, because it's super creepy. And, and also, just, the photo has definitely sold it for me, I think. Like, even if you don't believe it, it's a very creepy thing to find in the in, the, in a cave in the woods. So, let's go through some of the comments, shall we? There are a few people basically... Posting comments saying put it back and leave it leave an offering of tobacco and rum as an apology uh because uh, which is apparently a custom which comes from um voodoo um and um the lower like we mentioned in our first episode uh, apparently like tobacco and rum one of the well, one of the comments also says um but um only some lower do and you can morta- mortally offend by offering that to them so um seems to be a bit mixed up on top of that, um, this, you can also connect this a bit to European folklore, like where alcohol and herb offerings are, are somewhat common. And some people say they they tend to like offering either whiskey or tobacco, or absinthe and homemade bread, um, depending on what they're offering to. Which, like, I don't know that much about um, appeasing spirits. But they sound like they know what they're talking about. <laughs> don't take it from me. Yeah, um... And there's also comments saying it's a good start, but um, but you might need to use more aggressive techniques because at this stage it might be it might not be enough. Yeah, I also quite enjoyed this comment, which which after go- after Tiker uh had posted again in the comments saying, "Fuck, we're way too scared to go back there now." Uh, some a guy called Plug Trio, uh, replied saying, "You keep saying this, and I know it was your friend's decision, not yours, but I gotta say." What the fuck? Like, do you think it's okay to take something that's obviously not his and just not put it back? Doing that to another person makes you a dick, which fair enough. Doing that to a spirit or supernatural force, assuming at least one of you believes in such, since that's the excuse for not putting it back, is is being a dick to something that doesn't need to follow the rules and laws of the physical world to track you down and hold you responsible. Which, um, fair enough, like... Don't fuck with supernatural forces if you believe in them. Don't fuck with spirits. But yeah. Um he goes on to say, it's possible, especially the statue was using the Voodoo inspired ritual, the stat that the statue was given to an entity or being. In such a case it's said the entity can now come occupy that the object, and that has been given and dedicated to said to said being. That being said, it's proper to ask permission from the spirit before touching, using, or moving it from its sacred space. If your friend just picked it up, thinking it was a cool creepy statue, or whatever it, whatever is in it, it's probably confused, if not pissed, for being fucked about without a heads up. It might sound silly, but have your friend quiet himself and offer a sincere apology to the statue, explaining what happened and that he's willing to take it back to where it was found, that alone might alleviate the issue. Without knowing who the statue was dedicated to, I don't advise making it, a, making it a home on your property, but in case you absolutely can't make your way back to the original cave, it would be better to dedicate a new shrine or sacred spot for the statue to reside in than do nothing at all. If the statue is binding something or someone, burning it could re- could release it, which probably isn't a good thing if someone went to the effort of binding it in the first place. If you want to negate the energy, a theory says you can either bury it or place it in running water. However, not knowing what it involves, you could end up pissing off something else who isn't pleased you just used the backyard as a psychic garbage disposal. <laughs> and um safest bet is to return it ex- to exactly where you found it. Don't look back, and if you still feel sketched out, look into how to do a simple banishing, or find someone who, who will smudge your house for you, which I don't know what that means. But it sounds... Important, yeah. And um, the last kind I'm going to go to is um, one of the important ones because um, this guy, a- this guy actually actually took it off Wicked Hacker's hands. And um, some people may know him. Well, his username is New is just Newkirk, um, and the guy is actually is Greg Newkirk, who is the co-founder co-founder and editor-in-chief of week and Weird, uh, and he's also a museum curator of the where he acts as the director of the traveling museum of the paranormal. Yeah, he's uh, done a few. Like he's done a few things. He's, like he's been a full-time paranormal investigator. Um, he's also appeared on some uh, TV shows like um, Animal Planet's Finding Bigfoot uh, and TLC's Kindred Spirits. So, yeah. So yeah, he's he's pretty well known. So, um, Greg basically wrote, um, "If you're too nervous to take to take it back to where you found it." which is completely understandable, I'd be happy to handle it for you. Your friend made a mistake, and honestly, it's not like he would know better, especially if he's a skeptic, or was until he made a new friend. This kind of thing happens all the time, and it gets fixed all the time. Don't freak out, don't burn it, and please don't throw it into a lake. And then then he he asks a few questions, basically, about about the thing. And basically, then goes on to say, um, I promise you, you and your friend will be fine, uh, it sounds like your friend might have been a bit stubborn in acknowledging something strange was going on. Um, so whatever, so whatever's attached to the item might had to work hard to get his attention. It's just temporary, but um, when you go back to his house and you should accompany him since you were present when he took the statue, calmly explain to the figure that you didn't mean any harm and you're sorry you disturbed it. Then ask what it needs. Speak to it like you speak to any of your elders. You're going to feel tr- ridiculous, but trust me, one of these th- one of the three things will happen: either you just sort of understand what you're supposed to do with the statue, it will start acting out again, or everything will just stop. In the event it stops, congratulations, you just calmed the restless spirit. Uh, if you suddenly know what to do, go do it. Congratulations, you just calmed the restless spirit. If it acts up, PM me, I'll help. Um, that said. If you're, if the thing you're suddenly supposed to do isn't in any way related to self-harm or the harm of others, uh, or just a generally negative feeling, wrap it up, put it in a box, and think happy thoughts. As tempting as it might be to just throw it away or destroy it, don't do it. There's people who will handle that for you. I wouldn't be surprised if someone put it out in the woods because they were scared of it too. I know you've gotten some offers to sell it. Um, and while I can't offer you any cash for it, I'd be happy to take it off your hands so it can be properly d- studied, documented, and hopefully understood. I can give it a safe a safe place to live and a guarantee that it won't be destroyed. Feel free to PM me if you have any questions, need a hand, or just want to offload the statue. And basically, um, yeah, this uh, led to Wicked Hi- Hiker sending it off to uh, Greg Newkirk, and it ended up in the Travelling Museum of the Paranormal. And um Greg has written a pretty hefty um a pretty hefty article actually about it on in on dot com. Which I'll and I'll link then I'll link in the description and stuff, don't worry. And uh, so I'll I'll be reading out a few bits and pieces from it. I guess I I don't think I have time to go through everything in it. But um we've had most mostly lead up anyway. So I can scroll for a fair bit. So, next up we'll go so this from the um, article from com. That Greg, that Greg Newkirk wrote. Basically, he's after his comments. Um, he re- received an email about two days later saying, "Thanks for the advice." Today, we went back to my friend's house to get the statue and return it. When we got there, I saw the muddy footprints he was talking about, and the whole and the whole place smelled like a dog that just rolled around in the dirt. His dog wouldn't even come in the house. He went to show me where the statue was when he left last night, but it was gone. When we found it it was in his hallway and there was a big crack in the wall like it had been thrown there he swears that he never touched a thing and left it in the living room. We did what you said and explained we were sorry for taking it and that we wanted to give it back to the cave and asked it what what we should do um, I don't know if it was the feeling you were talking you were talking about but um but you both just felt like we should never go back to that cave again He said we, he felt like we should we needed to send it back to you. Um, when we were standing in the hallway talking to this thing his dog started barking like crazy outside and when we went to, and when we went to see what was going on we both thought we saw a woman standing in the dark corner of his living room she was totally naked really old and dripping water and her eyes sort of glowed in the dark she was hunched over near his shelves freaked the fuck out and ran and ran outside um and this was in the middle of middle of the day Whoever it was, wasn't there when, when we went back in. We grabbed the statue and apologised again, wrapped it in a pillowcase and put it in a box. Uh, he's just going to send it to you. To answer your questions, I didn't see any jewellery or, or pictures or anything by the statue, but there were a lot of leaves covering everything. There was some broken glass in a cup near the fire. My friend says he thinks there might have been some hair on it, but he brushed it off without thinking about it. Uh, I don't. We don't remember any weird symbols, anything in the cave. There were a lot of trigs piled around the foot of the statue, but that's it. Everyone has always talked about how people go go into those parts of the woods to worship the devil and do ceremonies and stuff. Even when my parents were kids, I fucking told him to leave to leave the statue there because it was probably from some weird ceremony out there. But he never believed in ghosts or the devil or anything. Right now, it's sitting in the trunk of his car at, at his house. Give me your address, and we'll mail it to you tomorrow. If I knew it was going to be this bad, I never would have let him take it out of the cave. Thanks for not calling us fucking idiots and telling us how stupid we are like the rest of the thread. This is the whole reason I used the throwaway to begin with. Uh, less than a week later, a small box arrived at Weird HQ, uh, addressed to the Travelling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult. So the crew in the Catskills made it to Greg and uh, Dana Matthews, uh, who is his wife and, fo- and fellow museum curator. So Greg writes, um, We carefully cut the package open to reveal a hard lump wrapped in the same pillowcase. We slowly peeled it back from the cloth, and rusty nails hammered into wooden eyes became, became visible, followed by a noose tightened around the statue's neck. Whatever purpose this piece was created for, it wasn't nice. The figure looked menacing, but there were a few things that were a bit confusing about the piece. The most obvious detail was that while the carving itself looked weathered an, an age, and so did the nails, the rope wrapped around its neck couldn't have been more than a year old. And the carving had obviously been pa- placed in the cave recently, with the new addition of the noose if the entire thing wasn't just a hoax to begin with. As we do with all, new, with all new items that arrive in the museum, we snapped a series of preliminary photos capturing the artifact just as it arrived, Jotted down some notes and took, and took some measurements. Then we locked the office and left to re- run errands. When we even sent countless haunted objects through the years, it's hard to shake the preconceived notion that all these things um, won't live up to their alleged reputations, uh, and rarely do. So for us, the crone, the crone was just another day at the office. Later that evening, while sitting in the living room watching a movie, Dana and I were startled by a commotion in the office. Thinking it was our two cats, I volunteered to break up the fight, only to realise, upon walking into the office, that the door had been closed the entire time. Nothing seemed out of place, and the cats were nowhere to be found. In fact, our feline familiars were in another room entirely, cowering beneath the bed, afraid to leave. I walked back into the office in an attempt to look for the sources and noises, but everything seemed in order, until I almost stepped on Jesus. Lying on the floor was a plastic figurine of Jesus, normally found nailed to a crucifix. As I turned him over in my hands, I realised that he was missing an arm. On the complete opposite side of the room, swinging silently on a cross hung in the corner, was Jesus' missing appendage. Something had not only managed to pull Christ down from the crucifix without removing removing it from the wall, it had had thrown the figure across the room. I have still never been able to find the nails from Jesus' hands or feet. Sitting below the now-desecrated cross was the crone. Uh, and he also posts some pictures of that as well. And then he goes on to write, um, Whether or not the new artifact was to blame, Dana and I wasted no time setting up 24-hour surveillance on the object. We placed a motion-activated tra- trail camera on in the corner of the office, facing directly in the direction that the crucifix hung, covering a selection of active artifacts in our collection. If something was causing the movement, we were going to capture it. For nearly two months, the, the motion camera was sat in the room, and there was no evidence of activity. I mean, apart from the occasional bumps in the night. But when you store hundreds of haunted, cursed, and supernaturally influenced objects in your home, you come to expect it. Still, there was nothing to point towards was a chrome being to blame for any of it. Then on March the 2nd, between the hours of 3 and 4 am, the the camera triggered three times. Initial analysis showed showed a few anomalies floating in and out of the frame, one of which even appeared to have its own light source. But it wasn't until we stitched frames together that we discovered something was really eerie. The crone had moved ever so slightly on its own. Things only got stranger from there, several weeks later, with no further anomalous activity captured. Dana called me into the living room to ask me why I'd stood on the furniture uh, after a shower, pointing to wet footprints that appeared to stand on the back of a couch. Only I'd not taken a shower in hours. For days, the earthy scent of pond water lingered in the house, with an intense feeling of dread and paranoia following it. There was an undeniable sense that something was with us, just waiting for the right moment to reveal itself. One evening, after enduring the overbearing weight of a hidden presence and the stink of algae for two weeks, we'd had enough. We were in the middle of a new new episode of Paranormal Lockdown, and when the smell of pond water got so great we couldn't stand it. Haunted objects, like behaving children, tend to respond and retaliate to the attention given to them during tantrums but our usual routine of ignoring the bad behaviour wasn't working. We were passed out due for a sit-down discussion with the Crone. No one interrupts a uh, paranormal television, not even terrifying entities. I stormed into the office, grabbed the carving and marched back into the living room, slamming it down on the coffee table. I sat back down on the couch and began addressing the entity directly, something which should never be done lightly. I explained that we were happy to give the Crone a home, but as this was our house, we had rules. The speech had given to most of the objects in the museum one time or another, and one one tends to work. And Racy he said uh, to the object, If we left you with the hikers, you would have found your way into a fire pit or a garbage can. If you found your way to a priest, you'd be bound and buried, or worse, locked on the dusty shelf for years. We're happy for you to live here, but only if you respect the situation. If you've got unfinished business, we'll help you put it to bed. But if you don't treat us respectfully, you're going in the box. In the box is a phrase that they would reserved for artifacts that don't play nice, or are or just malevolent. These objects, like unlike the rest of the collection, have their own dedicated lockboxes, so basically solitary confinement. Um, as soon as he uttered the, uttered the words, Dana sprang up from the couch, drawing my attention to the sound of rushing water from the other side of the house. We dealt with a broken pipe in recent past, and the sound of spilling water onto our laundry floor was a panicking, inducing noise. We rushed towards the sound, only for it to cease as we entered the hall. There was no water, but behind us, back in the living room, we could hear the dull thud of something hitting, hitting the floor. The crone had managed to roll off the coffee table and under a television, television stand. As I knelt down to and reached under the stand to grab the carving, Dana yelled out and rushed to my side. When I turned to look at her, she was propping the television up with both hands. The screen had nearly fallen directly on my head. We shared a brief look of fear and agreement. Three loud knocks reverberated from the living room wall, rattling pitch frames and flickering the bulb from a single lamp providing our room with light. And that evening, the crone became one of the few objects not stored in an open-air display when not on tour. They prepared a special box for the statue, wrapped it back up in the pillowcase it arrived in, and clicked the padlock shut. The strange, sense and terrible feelings um, uh, all disappeared, but the shadowy presence never quite left. Yeah, la- later, um, the crone joined the travelling museum on tour which has the purpose of providing the public with um, rare hands-on experiences with haunted items that they can't really get anywhere else. They but they say it's clear the chrome is different, but they believe that the reality of the artifact is that it's important to share them with the world, even if they're potentially dangerous, but it was a d- look-don't-touch artifact. Apparently, immediately, immediately after, people began to experience strange symptoms around the object, with the most common being burning sensations in the eyes, as if the statue was trying to avert avert the gaze. Overwhelming fear and anxiety accompanied the opening of the crone's padlocked case, and the hands-off policy barely mattered because visitors seemed to instinctively recall from the artifact. Psychics and sensitives in particular had the the most visceral reaction to the crone. Some believe it was created as a vessel for inhuman spirits. Some believe it was a curse intended to blind and kill an unlucky victim. Acclaimed psychic chip coffee wanted to straight up exercise the figure with holy water blessed by the Pope the Pope himself. Yeah, and uh etc, etcetera. Et so, um so uh yeah, that's uh Greg's person like Greg's own beliefs on the on the crone was um that it was created to um summon the spirit of a local witch, because the location of its discovery, coupled with a the specifics of the carving's creation, led him to believe that someone was aiming to commune with and contain a particular spirit. Dana, on the other hand, believed that the spirit Uh, Was created as a sort of protection object used to ward a sacred ritual area, which apparently didn't do much good. Uh, Chip Coffee um, said uh, he wasn't sure why it was carved, but the Babylonian spirit Marduk, which is meant to be a powerful entity with 50 names, is attached to it. And Marduk is often associated with water, which um, could be tied to the pond water smells, etc. A bit later, Um, While under a monitored 24-hour live video feed, where the um, Chrome was observed by as many as 100 viewers at a time, uh, electromagnetic fluctuations, light anomalies, and feelings of general unease were reported by observers. But the most frightening reports came from viewers who who experienced strange activity manifesting in their own homes as they logged into the video feed. Power outages, electronic equipment failures, and burning eyes all seem to announce the arrival of the familiar earthy pond-like scent. And in one case, a visit from the crone herself. Uh, in the final days of the carving surveillance, they asked the viewers to for experiment ideas, and basically ended up landing on a voodoo coffin nail, holy water, and a crucifix as trigger objects. On her last night on the 24-7 watch, the crone appeared to flick the nail away, which you can see a, a gif of on the um, article, which I'll link. They now still bring the crone to every date on the um, Travelling Museum tour uh, to gather like, opinions, etc. on it. Uh, but it remains on the no-touching list, which at the time of the article was with only one other item, which was a ritual sword. While they've occasionally gotten a... In, Piece of evidence from museum visitors or viewers of the live of the video feed—they'd not officially come face to face with the entity, which um, it was said to be attached to the artifacts. Like there's bits more there's bits more to the article, but I think I've probably got um, given you enough idea of of the situation now, and we're, we're kind of starting to run a bit long, so um, we'll wrap up there, um, and um, I hope you enjoyed it because. Um, yeah, first time without a guest, and it was a bit weird. <laughs> but a um, super, super, super creepy story. Yeah, anyway, um, thank you for listening. Um, We actually made quite a few lo- listeners last week, um, and I'm I'm quite proud of it, actually. Uh, yeah, I love you guys. But yeah, a couple of shout-outs to a few things I- I've enjoyed this week. Um, one really cool podcast on the mythology and the monsters and stuff, which is actually on YouTube. Uh, it's called um, The Monster Guys, who are... And I, I actually really enjoyed listening to them talk about the Wendigo, which um, I I love a good Wendigo story, and that's not going to change. So um, I definitely recommend looking up those episodes. Uh, and on top of that, yeah, and I also caught back up with um, And That's Why We Drink, which is the podcast that inspired this one. Yeah, absolutely love those guys. Definitely go check them out. And finally, I'll also give one big shout out to uh, Whisper in the Night, it's a podcast which explores all sorts of fact, fiction, folklore. So pretty similar to us. Just pretty creepy. It's great. Definitely go check them out. And I'll cut off here. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed us, share us with your friends, family. Probably not your children. And uh, give us a rating if you can. It helps me be seen by more people, which really does help out. And uh, thank you everyone that has already. And um, we'll end it there. So have a great week and I'll see you next time. Cut to music.